Hey, it's Craig Brady. Welcome to the Toronto Today podcast for Tuesday as we inch closer to the end of September on the 28th. I had to talk about the Ontario science table. Worst case scenarios aren't necessarily predictions. It's important. We got smart people on there, smart men and women making forecasts. There's two questions here. One, why do we mistake the worst case scenario with a prediction? And two, when do these stop? When do we stop the forecasting that's dictating public health policy? I mean, it's not now. And if it's not now, then when? Fair questions, I think. We'll talk to uh, Erica Eiffel about the departure of Annamie Paul, not just from politics, but resigning as Green Party leader. Was she done in by either racism or misogyny? Important questions to ask. We'll get the skinny on it as well from David Aiken, our chief political correspondent, as to what comes next for Annamie Paul. What comes next for Kevin Buong, the embattled MP that's going, it looks like, to Ottawa as an independent and certainly not as a member of the Liberal Party. Ken Daniels joins me from Detroit, a longtime Toronto sports fixture, Red Wings play-by-play man, to remember 1972 and the Paul Henderson goal and the Canada-Soviet Summit Series. It happened 49 years ago today. And we'll do what happened when on this date, September 28th. Let me start with this. We're going to get to Anime Paul in a little bit. Today, maybe you know this or not, today, um, things are going pretty well with COVID, right? Like, we get that. And no, no one needs to have any victory parties. No one has to have any, you know, Borat-esque high fives. But we're doing pretty well. David Fisman's a guy I really, I really like. And he makes people angry on the other side of COVID. He's like, you, Dr. Professor David Dr. Fisman, you stop it with your prognostications. But he's been right more than wrong about the pandemic. He quit the Ontario science table. Very frustrating moment for him um, about a month ago. But he wrote this yesterday. Ontario is really interesting right now. We are doing well, and I'm not sure why. It may be that HEPA, masks, and vax have slowed things down. Model fit from September 2nd was spot on. I had a hard time believing it, but so far so good. Would avoid premature declarations of victory. And all that's true. We're doing great. You know all the people that were worried about unsafe September. It's been pretty safe in schools, to be honest. Kids aren't ending up in hospitals. They never were going to be ending up in hospitals en masse. We get that, right? But the Delta variant, Greg, and I know it's more transmissible, but generally speaking, there's little impact on kids. Kids aren't getting sick from this. There will be a incident, right, once in a while. In fact, I saw a study yesterday that documented that there's been more breakouts uh, among that, that basically a 25 year old vaccinated person who's about as safe as it gets is more susceptible to getting sick from COVID than a 10 year old non-vaccinated person. Can I say that again? If you have a vaccine, if you're double dosed and you're 25, you have less of a bad outcome opportunity because that's the math and the data. That's not fear. And, uh, and, and as I call it, uh, COVID fear porn, CFP, avoid that at all costs. A 10-year-old, a 10-year-old with no shot is uh, is more safe than a 25-year-old with both shots. And there's not much more safe than a 25-year-old with both shots. So I see today that the Ontario Science Table will put out new COVID-19 projections Tuesday. I got a lot of respect for the Science Table. That's Look, that, that's fantastic that modeling is getting put out. Let me remind you again. And I don't know if there will be a knowledge of it today. You know, the Peter Unis, the, you know, the people that are like, here comes Delta. Delta's got 
here it's Delta, 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 nonstop. Delta, that's not a fraternity. That's the warning signal from people like Dr. Peter Uni. And there was a time pre-vaccination when he was spot on. And there were waves coming. Here comes the second wave, and they were right. Here comes the third wave, and they were right. But eventually, the vaccines and our risk mitigation tactics wear everybody down. Let me remind you again. Ontario is facing it. Here's what it was September 1st, start of the month. Ontario is facing, I'm reading a story. Ontario is facing a substantial fourth wave of the COVID-19 pandemic and could see daily case counts reach 9,000 by October in a worst-case scenario, according to new modeling. But why does the worst case scenario get the headline? Because that's what we led with. That was the story. Hey, did you hear? We're going to have 9,000 cases. Not, hey, did you hear what could happen if we just stopped everything? Stopped vaccinations. Stopped masking. Stopped isolating when we're sick. Came to work sick. And just absolutely went full on let's embrace covid for what it is and let it sweep over us like a beautiful cascading shower you know those shower heads cascading you can change the settings that's what that's how we'd get to 9000 cases and last time i checked and, and i checked pretty regularly october's on friday mhm and we're not getting to 9000 cases we ain't getting to 900 cases let me draw you the distinction here Kieran Moore is the uh, Dr. Kieran Moore is the chief medical officer of health. He's not an epidemiologist or an infectious disease specialist, but he does rely on them for some of his projections. Here's what he said on Friday about what's coming this winter. It is in stark contrast to um, an epidemiologist that is like always seems to be right about this stuff in the United States. Here's what Dr. Moore said about why we need vaccine mandates to keep rolling month after month after month after month. I do think they're going to be with us for the fall and winter. Um, that is uh, uh, at, a, at a minimum of those uh, difficult months. I have seen modeling where we have a significant rise in January and February after the Christmas holidays. Uh, and that is uh, disconcerting. Okay. Look, he's seen modeling that has bad worst case scenarios, right? Every model has a worst case scenario and a best case scenario. Maybe the Ontario science table can explain today why their worst case scenario hasn't happened. And please don't give us the credit. Please don't praise us. We know what we're doing. We knew to get vaccinated. We know how to risk mitigate. We know not how to be reckless and endanger ourselves. We know all that stuff. And I heard people tell me, hey, well, all those projections scared us straight. No, no, man. We've been doing what we've been doing since we've been fully vaccinated. We've been, doing, we've been doing the same thing since June or July or whenever we all got our second shot. Nothing's changed. But schools, let me know when it happens. We've had schools open now for bordering on 20, 21 days. Is everyone feeling um, panicked about it? Is there less panic in the air than there was 21 days ago? You're damn right we are. Dr. Scott Gottlieb has this new book out. He will be on the show uh, in a week or so. And he said this about the United States is that, COVID's going to subside by Thanksgiving in the United States. Here's why. I'm optimistic that we're peaking in COVID um, for the grim truth that the Delta wave is so pervasive and infecting so many people that on the back end of this, we're going to have immunity in at least 85, maybe 90 percent of the population. Some will have acquired that immunity through vaccination. Some will have acquired that immunity through infection. Some will have been both vaccinated and infected. But on the back end of this, you're going to have so much immunity in the population that the virus isn't going away. I don't think we're going to reach true herd immunity where this just disappears. 
but it's certainly not going to spread at the kind of levels we're seeing right now, and the prevalence will decline. And barring something unexpected, where you get a new variant that pierces the immunity offered by vaccination or prior infection, I would expect on the back end of this Delta wave, probably sometime around Thanksgiving, that prevalence levels will decline. Now, again, remember, the Delta wave is being experienced on a regional basis. The South is coming down dramatically in terms of their caseloads, but other parts of the country is going up. Natural immunity. They're talking about it in the United States. When, when Dr. Gottlieb's talking about it, and very few are people, very few people are here, it won't get mentioned once by the chief medical officer of health today. It won't get mentioned once by the science table. Can someone ask the question? Like hundred bucks to the charity of your choice if someone can ask a question about and get a good answer about natural immunity today from the science table. That's all I ask. Eric Eiffel's going to join. Well, hold on here. Uh, Eric Eiffel's going to join us coming up next, but I wanted to bring Shiba Siddiqui in. We were going to talk about Anime Paul a little bit. I think we'll have time to do it later in the show. You and I uh, advanced this yesterday in that she was going to step down from the Green Party. Sheba, a lot of reaction to it, a lot of a lot of finger pointing, a lot of explanation. And uh, it leaves the Green Party who were kind of riding high off the 2019 election with some oomph and with a new leader after that. It leaves the Green Party in a bit of a mess, doesn't it? Oh, it's so disappointing. I mean, yes, you, you did bring it up on the show yesterday, but just actually hearing her speak and what she had to say, it, it just left me feeling so sad. I want to play this clip here uh, mm. where she talks about what how she's feeling and what she went through. Uh, what people need to, to realize is that uh, when I was elected uh, and put in this role, I was um, breaking a glass ceiling. Um, what I didn't realize at the time is that I was breaking a glass ceiling that was going to fall on my head and leave a lot of shards of glass that I was going to have to crawl over, um, you know, throughout my time as a leader. That is so sad. So look, she's mm-hmm. a Jewish black woman. We can't discard the anti-Semitism, the racism, the misogyny that played a role in this. She didn't have support from the beginning. There was a target on her back already. And she talks about this here in this clip and what she had to say yesterday. It was, it was really sad. And you know what? She was the first. And that's often a very difficult place to be. It seems to have worn her down. I don't blame her. And she actually said that this was the worst experience of her life. Does that say at all? I mean, there were going to be slings. There were going to be arrows. Jugmeet Singh faces them. Aaron O'Toole is facing them right now. This is what, I'm, and not to counteract anything you're saying, but do you look and say it may be something that she personally, not in the role, may not have anticipated quite as distinctly just how difficult, how, how much mud wrestling there is in politics? Because there's a ton. I think that she expected more support, especially from her own party. I mean, I, someone from her party said yesterday that, uh, Elizabeth May, when she wanted Elizabeth May to be more vocal on certain issues, she stayed quiet. Yeah. So she needed that backing. She needed that support. She didn't feel that it was there. And it's, it seems like she crumbled. I don't blame her watching what they've done to her. And hopefully she has, you know, a new start somewhere. She's definitely a leader. So hopefully she can, she can use those skills and move on to something where she feels her mental health is in a better place and she feels she has much more support. But you wonder who's next for the Green Party because they're going to look at this and go, and I was thinking yesterday even, what if the party just dissolves and something brand new starts up? It wouldn't be the first time in the last 25 years that's happened in Canadian politics because the party looks utterly dysfunctional right now. Oh, absolutely. Let's see what mm. happens. It's definitely going to be interesting to see what happens to that party. Very excited to have our next guest on. Shiva and I were just talking about Anime Paul. Uh, resigning. It probably doesn't come as a surprise based on some of her comments, some of the tension and infighting and dysfunction within the Green Party. But, you know, someone just wrote this to me and it's, they're right. This is why people don't go into politics. 
Good people like her will never get in. And it's sad because she's a fantastic woman. I can't disagree with any of that. But yeah, those are two conversations to have. Is that the case? And can we get good people in politics anymore? People can make more money in the private sector. People get absolutely barbecued uh, when it comes to their past. If they said the wrong thing here or there and some of it, they should be made accountable for. That's for sure. I want to bring on Erica Eiffel, who is Hill Times columnist, founder of Equity and Inclusion Consultancy, not in my color. It is great to have you on i'm a fan of your advocacy and your words thank you for making the time for me oh thank you how much is (laughs) thank you yes we can only go up from here uh, or down we'll see how it goes um what's what's fair about that it's it's a results-oriented business politics is um she was dealing um with with some major major issues of dysfunction i think some infighting i don't think there was the support she needed uh, her resigning, Erica, couldn't have come as, as a terrible surprise to you or a tremendous surprise to you yesterday. I tweeted about it in July. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, because I knew that, you know, going in with all the infighting that really blew up in the spring and, um, you know, the Globe and Mail had put out uh, a story on the Green Party's own internal report that talked about the systems of racism and transphobia in the party. It talked about how the executive class of the party knew about it. They know about it. They've ignored it. And so coming in with that kind of, of baggage, and she, she talked about it yesterday, um, was a way her party kneecapped her like they did. And so when you, when you create a deficit like that and then expect your leader to perform from that deficit uh, without any supports, without a campaign manager, without financing, without staff, they set her up to fail. And that happens so much in this country, especially with black female leadership. I, like, let's not... I mean, uh, MP Selena would be a great example, but even here, there's a, there's a woman, um, named Annette Boozy who mm, yeah. was elected as head of her faculty union and the horrid treatment of her is unconscionable. So I'm not sure. And this is the other thing. The other thing is what does the green party say to women going forward? Yeah, but it's funny. The day after the election, we had um, Selena Cesar uh, Siobhan on uh, and she just rocked it. I thought she was great on the coverage. We, I, I said to her, I go, you, you got to keep going because even if you're not in politics anymore, we need more voices like you. And I know there's people that step into politics and then they step back, Erica, and they say, I can accomplish more. And, and there's just plain a lot let, less BS. But that's a problem with the system. That's not a problem with them. That's the problem with the system, and I can put up my hand and say I'm one of them, okay? I personally uh, would not want to go into politics, not with this kind of toxicity and this time of... It's a system of politics, right? It's your... It it goes beyond the candidate. It's the riding association. It's the support from the party that you get or lack thereof. And time and time, it's the the riding you're running in. Like time and time again, it's been shown that women, especially women of color, are given fewer resources, less support, and um, and are expected to do more. 
and that's our society and that's the way our systems work. And um, when people say, well, it, uh, she produced a disastrous result, mm, that's only telling part of the story. It's only part of the story. It's only part of the story. It's only the outcome, what led to that. I, I want to believe, in, and I think people people will vote how, how they're going to vote. I don't think everybody that looks like Jugmeet Singh votes for Jugmeet Singh. I don't no. think everybody that votes for Justin Trudeau votes for Justin Trudeau. And I think, you know, Leslin Lewis was even at the at the CPC convention, and, and people are interested in her opinions, but boy, some of them are, are controversial. So I always ask this. I always ask this. What... I'm looking, I lived in the States for 10 years and I've seen so many, and there's a higher percentage of black people in the U.S. than there's in Canada. Okay, fine. But Erica, I, I'm probably preaching to the choir here. I, I, I don't know where, where our, where's our infrastructure to levitate and push people up. Where's our Kamala Harris? Where's our AOC? Where's our Condoleezza Rice? It doesn't matter if it's Democrat or Republican. Mm. We're having a real struggle advancing the case for black female politicians in this country. It's a problem. Yeah, it is a big problem. And I, too, have lived in the States for a few years, so I know what you're talking Where about. Where were you, by the way? Uh, Texas. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You might have enjoyed Detroit better, but I don't know. I love Detroit. I love living in Michigan. I, I miss it. I am so curious about Detroit. It's <laughs> on my list. I so want to I'll tell you all about it. It's like a thing. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I think in America, in America, you have organizations that um, provide that kind of support and that are mm -hmm. there to bring a more diverse slate of candidates. You look at AOC and Occupy Democrats, for example, and, um, and when you have, when women, and especially women of color, have that support, it's what we win. The other thing, too, is that black women in this country do the community political work. They do the work of their communities. They organize, raise money, um, build drives. They do all that work, all of that. So it's not like it's a I, I, I hate this, but I'm going to bring it in. It's not a skills issue. So yeah. Yeah. Right. So why is it not translated again to the political structure. Now, this year we had, I think, three black women elected. I think that's the most. I want to see how many make it through to the end, to through one single term, because I'm not sure that we even know. We say that diversity is our strength. I don't think we know how are, to. Are, you're saying new it. ones, like are, you're not counting like a Mitzi Hunter who. No, you, no, 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 Okay, no. okay, three new sorry, ones. Sorry, okay. Sorry. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. And, um, well, I don't know if is Mercy Ian new. Anyway. Yeah, it's a that, yeah. It's a grayish. Anyway, point being that, um, sure, we have these black women elected, we have black women at the top of leadership yeah. in some places. What are their experiences? Where is their support? Um, in speaking of America, in the States, it's been shown that black women receive, like leaders, receive more complaints. Um, I know in the federal public service, anecdotally, that has been the experience. 
Um, I got about 60 seconds. I want to spend a lot more time with you on this next week and, and other issues. But let me ask you real and, and stretch out. Give yourself the 60. Annamie, Paul, if you could have pulled her aside at any point during her leadership and said, do this differently. This Again, when you're in the lens, when you got tunnel vision, it's hard. Everybody ends up having a regret during a campaign or a leadership run. Would you have advised her to say, don't take this or take the L here or be more vocal about this? What would you have said? I think that presumes a lot, that question. Okay. Um, the reason is, I think had she got rid of Noah Zatman earlier, it would have still then the problem would have been still been Jenica Atwin. Like they would have found something. They didn't want her there. They brought her in because this is what organizations do. They bring black women in to prove their diversity, use them for window dressing, don't support them. Mm. Then when black women point out problems, then all of a sudden we become the enemy. And then we're pushed out because we're, quote, Mm. not the right fit. By the way, we need to talk about that not the right fit phrase, because I feel like that is just a cover for, for racism and misogyny and all that stuff. Anyway. So if I said, hey, maybe you should have done X, Y, and Z, I don't even think it would have made a difference. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I, I, I see it. it. It was a losing battle. Uh, we all knew that that the results wouldn't be great. We knew it was going to be tough for her to win uh, her own seat. Um, and, and there was progress made in the by-election that, she, you know, the, the party couldn't galvanize behind her and whether they wanted to or not or knew how to. Those are two very different things. And it might be a 60-40, 70-30 split. I got to leave it there. I hope you come on again. I really enjoy uh, our conversation today and I hope we have more of them. Yes, it was good. Okay, thanks. Uh, Erica Eiffel, Hill Times columnist. Thank you. Uh, Not in my color. Check out, uh, she's founder of Equity and Inclusion Consulting, Not in my color, and check her out. Uh, Very pleased uh, to welcome in Global News' uh, chief political correspondent, David Aiken, joining us to talk about the demise of Annamie Paul. She resigned yesterday, uh, certainly threw some punches on the way out, talked about shattering the glass ceiling. David Aiken joins us now. By the way, as an aside, fantastic job last Monday. It all went swimmingly. Your map kept working. (laughs) We knew who would win the election. There wasn't this 4 a.m. business or come back the next day or let's find out how things are going in New Brunswick the following. The mail-in ballots kind of you know some were still trickling in late but it didn't change much no it didn't change much and yeah my, my little touch screen it had trouble keeping up with me i think i had more <laughs> coffee than it had going but um yeah no it didn't change much we came back the same what changed i mean really is what we're talking about is sort of as, as they say the bottom of the card the top of the card liberal conservative ndp block you know they, they're all sort of roughly in the same position but the, i think one of the stories that we're still trying to figure out is on the one hand, the rise of the People's Party of Canada, and we were talking about that last week. Mm-hmm. And then on the other hand, is the absolute collapse of the Green Party vote. And frankly, I'm surprised it took Annamie Paul a week to say, that's it, I'm done. 
Um, it, I think it, that, that yesterday's announcement was the least surprising thing. Um, you know, I've seen sort of in Canadian politics in the last uh, you know couple of months. To be you know, uh, and to be coarse, and politics is a coarse business, and you will get you'll you'll get stabbed in the back just as much as you will in the front by the opposition. Um, there's, I think there's two ways to view this, David, and and one is is that uh, she was certainly you know at times done wrong. It feels like internally didn't have the internal support she needed, and at, and the other side might say. Boy, you're going to face some uh, some bullets uh, at a bunch of different times and you got to be ready for them. And there may be some questioning if indeed she was, if she was strong enough to hold up to scrutiny and just, you know, if someone pushes you in politics, you got to push back harder sometimes. Uh, you know, there's there's definitely a I think I think Annamie Paul herself and I've talked to her a few times over the last, uh, you know, eight or nine weeks because this 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 whole internal leadership dispute it just didn't pop up overnight. It really started back in the spring when the Greens lost an MP, a floor crosser, Jenica Atwin, mm-hmm. out in Fredericton. She won in 2019 as a Green. Uh, and then she had a dispute with the leader in the leader's office. And uh, she picked up her, her toys and went over to the liberal side. And incidentally, she won as a liberal uh, last Monday night out in Fredericton. But that sparked a whole huge fight within uh, within the Greens. And I know that Annamie Paul, as I said, I've talked to her about this. You know, is there things she might have done differently? Yes. Um, is there was there a concerted attack by what is called the governing council of the Greens, 15 member council at times vacant? They just had some elections. Um, yes. And now yesterday, um, enemy Paul did not take any questions and, you know, can't blame her. She's she's quitting. And that, that thank you very much. I'm done. Um, she's out. And I should point out she's started the process of resigning. This is the weirdest part. Of yeah. it. This is the thing that if you're reporting on it, they have all sorts of strange processes. She's not out yet, but she's on the way out. And some Greens find this frustrating uh, that there's what is what it, what it wouldn't do now. Will she try to burn the house down um, on her way out? But there's no question that whatever the issue is, Annamie Paul, the council, here's here's just some numbers which are staggering. The inter, Let's start with Toronto Centre, where Annamie Paul ran uh, for the third time, the third time she's presented herself to voters in Toronto Centre, which I should point out is one of the safest liberal seats in the country. In this, in this general election, Paul finished fifth, not second, not third, she finished fifth. She got just uh, eight eight and a half percent of the vote, thirty nine hundred votes. Marcy Ian, the liberal, like I said, this is a liberal stronghold. She won fifty percent of the vote. Twenty three thousand people voted for. Her. So there, your by election that that's all on her, on Paul, for deciding to run again in Toronto Center. It's her home. She's talked about the connection she has with that community. That's fine. Elizabeth May, the previous leader, ran once and lost in a London, Ontario riding, ran once and lost in Nova Scotia riding. She tried to take on Peter McKay. Don't know if yeah. there's much sense in that. Yeah. But then she figured out, yeah, way out there in the West Coast, Sandwich Gulf Islands, that's where you can get elected, and that's where she, Elizabeth May got reelected. So, you know, I, I might have chosen a riding like Guelph. You know, that's where Mike Schreiner, the Ontario Green leader, He's got a seat. Um, you know, it's just an hour and a half from downtown Toronto, not even. Why not run into riding like Guelph? Anyways, I think she made a bad choice there. And then across the country, the, the everything just collapsed. They got 2.2% of the national vote. The People's Party of Canada got almost three times as much. And the Greens ended up with just 143,000 people voting. They didn't run candidates in 86 ridings. And that's that's on the council. That's on the leader. 
it was a disaster from start to finish. I'm so glad you brought that up about the riding because that David most shocking thing of the night. I, I'm in. Uh, I'm. At, we got a soccer game, kids soccer game in Cherry Beach. So I'm in that riding on a Wednesday night about a month ago, and I see lots of Marcy Ian signs. Sure, as you note, she's the incumbent, but I see a lot of Annamy Paul signs, and so I'm thinking same thing as the by election last fall where it was 42% to 32.7 and and mm-hmm. it's a two person race and i'm thinking okay like i'm just based on signs on the two or three streets i walked down but then to see her get just destroyed just blown out in her own riding that tells you right there how much support evaporated in just 11 months for the party and for her as a candidate and she will say enemy paul will say in during the by election she had actually some money to try and campaign and that the National Council did not give her money to try and win her that seat in the general election. Here's, as we report this, we really only have two Annamie Paul's side of the story. I've been covering the Green Party now for 10 or 15 years, and it is one of the most opaque parties to try and deal with. When I say opaque, yes, we know we can chat with Elizabeth May. Yes, in this case, the leader was in front of cameras often. But she, Annamie Paul was at war, as I said, with this governing council, the president of the party, the vice president of the party, the, you know, the Ontario rep of the party. Mm-hmm. And try and get those people on the phone. Impossible. And so yesterday, as you mentioned, Annamie Paul left with some broadsides for her own party. I would have expected the president of the party, just newly elected, I should point out, um, would have, and she's from Ontario, would have stood up and said, okay, well, here's our side of the story. And I think that as we sort of, if the Greens want to become a serious party, they got to make sure they get candidates in every riding. And someone has to stand up and take some accountability within the party for this whole mess. And it's impossible to get them uh, to go on the record to stand up and try to explain uh, what happened. I know we only got a couple of minutes, but I'd be remiss if I didn't get your expertise on if anything changes with this Kevin Vuong situation. Uh, there's just so you know, there's rallies here in Toronto. They're good. They're having a big. No, no, you know, I've, been, I've been following. I know you probably have this. So just just the fact that there's so much there. And to me, this this just lands on not whether or not he's, uh, you know, he's guilty of what he was accused of before the charges were dropped. This is about the vetting process. This is about coming clean to your own party in that. That process. This is about keeping a liberal banner all over your social media the day of the election. And we see now from the mail-in vote, he was doing much, much better. It was almost a dead heat on election night. Um, the, the constituents clearly want, uh, w- w- they seem overwhelmingly, David, to want a by-election in this riding. Is that going to be possible? It's it's up to Kevin Vuong. Um, th- there is a process by which the House of Commons can vote to remove uh, a member of parliament. It's been done twice. One of the guy's names was Louis Riel. Another was a guy, I don't need to name him, but it was in the 40s. He was accused and convicted of treason. He was spying for the Russians. Now, what Kevin Vuong did hardly meets uh, you know, the, the high crime of treason. This is really an issue between Kevin Vuong and the people of, of Spadina, Fort York. And the unfortunate thing for those who want him removed is, you know, you're going to have to wait till the next general election if Vuong insists on taking a seat. He's entitled to it. There's no law that prevents him. You know, I got news for everybody in Spadina, Fort York. Uh, politicians have sometime been hiding the truth or uh, bending the truth for uh, generations now and still getting elected. Vuong would not be the first to do so. Um, and yes, he's going to face a lot of he's going to face some difficult time, I assume, if he hangs out anywhere near the House of Commons with uh, liberals and new Democrats. I don't think the conservatives care if there's a by-election there. They're happy to see one less liberal one on less the government liberal. side. So yeah. the conservatives, 
Yeah, they're not going to vote for someone to drop out, and the Bloc Québécois doesn't care. The NDP want a by-election, of course, because they think they can win in a by-election, and they want that seat. They used to hold that seat, used to be Olivia Chow's seat. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and the Liberals just don't, they want that seat back on their column. So everybody's playing some partisan politics here. For the good people of Spadina, Fort York, um, you'll get a chance to cast an X again in uh, you know a couple of years, and uh, that's perhaps where you want to make sure you pay uh, as much attention as you can to the uh, mm. credibility of your local candidates. But when one of them tries to pull a fast one over mm. the party and the constituents, not much you can do, I'm afraid. Awesome stuff with David Aiken. David, thanks for making time for our show here in Toronto. Appreciate it. Hey, no problem. Have a great morning. You got it. David Aiken, chief political correspondent. Uh, coming up now, Ken Daniels, Red Wings play-by-play man, 25 years. He's old enough to remember, and we like having him on in Toronto. Every time he's on in Toronto, we ask him uh, about something significant. And this is it. 49 years ago, Ken, for Paul Henderson's goal, Game 8, Canada-Soviet Union. I'll ask you about that series, but this is really what got it started for international hockey, wasn't it? It sure did. And all, all the games that wind up 6-5, even years later, we refer back to that one and the 87 Canada Cup and the 6-5-6-5. And you got the 6-5-6-5. Crazy, always Canada, Russia. I think by then it was huge, not only because I was 13 at the time in 72, but watching that series, I was just amazed we could get the game from Russia. And to hear that crowd and the net and yet Soviet and da da Canada, that's how I learned yes and no <laughs> that, that I knew, you know, at 13 years old. And that Russian national anthem was so beautiful, but it seemed so damn long. Those are the memories I have. And I have a memory now of that series and behind the scenes and with the wives and the going out uh, for Mickey Redmond, who's uh, my broadcast partner and played in game one of that series, which started so well. And then they got smoked at the forum and it was game over and Mick didn't dress again, but stayed with mm-hmm. the team the whole way where others did not. So I hear a lot about that series from Mick and now I'm, I'm working with him now for 25 years. So how crazy is that? Yeah. The one thing I've absolutely never thought of until uh, getting ready to, to chat with you about it today was the idea of a two week break in between game four and five. I look at this game four ends on September 8th in Vancouver. That's Phil Esposito's famous speech there when they go down now two two one and one in the series. But two weeks, Ken, like the now in an Internet age, you'd be you know, there'd be coverage of it every day There'd be like. We don't like it when there's three games between three days between Stanley Cup playoff series or two games between a, you know, a semifinal and a gold medal game at the Olympics. A two week break for guys that probably, to be honest, weren't working out terribly hard in the summer in 1972. Right. No, because they had a like a six week training camp, I think, in Montreal under Harry Sinden and at at Maple Leaf Gardens. And I, I think that break in large part was what Alan Eagleson had worked out. Uh, with the players um, that they'd be able to bring their wives over and they travel and they did games in Sweden, I think, and Czechoslovakia. Then I think that's where they played and they could bring the wives on the trips. So I think that's what the players really enjoyed. Of course, when they got over to Russia, they're all worried they were being bugged and being spied on and, and were worried about uh, where their wives were at every moment of the day. But I think that was also a part, if they were going to give up part of their summer to do this, it was vacation time. And, and, and I, if I remember correctly, uh, that's why there was that break. Tell me what the so you're a teenager, you're obsessed with hockey, the culture shock of realizing that they could play, that that they could play, they could play with us. They they would pass differently. They would sometimes do it with more grace. Canada would be more about grit. The Soviets would be more about grace. And, and you experienced this. 
very much firsthand. We're talking, you know, a quarter century later with the Russian five and the brilliance. I mean, there's been a documentary. It, it goes without saying um, there's never been anything like it in the NHL. Almost certainly there'll never be anything like it again with Fedorov, Larionov, Kozlov, Fetisov and Konstantinov. So, um, boy, there's nobody better to talk to you about the Soviet, you know, influence on the game and how it just it, it hit us all like a fist to the stomach when they started dominating us in the series. Yeah. And I remember talking to Igor about that and looking back on it uh, from then um, as he was younger. Uh, but he thought at the time, and I know talking to others, that they were sure their game could succeed here. And yet when you had uh, the Maple Leafs, I think it was Jerry McNamara, right? Who went mm-hmm. the yep. Gretchen, I can't play or something. So it was just the overconfidence in our way. But I, I, what Canada really did was underestimate the 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 will that the Soviets had um, to succeed and the training uh, regimen that they were under. I don't think we knew anything about that. And you're thinking, yeah, they got the old equipment and the skates and they can't play. Well, they were playing with their heads and they were so smart. And that's why, as you know, Igor was always mm-hmm. playing chess on the plane. They were always thinking to move ahead. That was just their way of life and how they were brought up. So to see that from me after hearing they couldn't, and as a 13-year-old, you got wow, they can. And Yakushev and, and Harlamov and unbelievable. And then you see the, the grit um, that took from the American side and, and, and the Soviets kept getting hit, but they came back and you thought, oh, they're going to wilt. They're, they're chicken. No, they're not. No, they're, they're army guys. These guys are good. Ken Daniels joining us on Toronto today, uh, play-by-play voice of the Detroit Red Wings, now coming up on a quarter century. We're talking about game eight uh, and the memories of Paul Henderson's famous goal. So let's get to Paul. Um, you know, a, a good NHLer, right? Nobody, the arguments for Paul, as you know, Ken, to go to the Hall of Fame are almost strictly based on his performance in this series. Uh, I, you know, my entry point for Paul Henderson's a member of the WHA Toronto Toros. That was yeah. interesting to me that he was Mine playing too. with Mark Napier and, and uh, Vaclav Nedimansky, right? Who went into the Hall of Fame a couple of years ago, also a former Red Wing briefly. Hey. Yeah. Leap and Lunisco. Leap and Lunisco. That's not yes. <laughs> so I love the Toros as a little watching Mike Anscombe on Global. I would I would watch those right. games all the time uh, from yeah. my uh, farmhouse in Strathroy. But Paul, explain to, to our audience. This was the idea that he would get a crucial goal, a critical goal in three straight, you know, iconic games. This is not Mario Lemieux and this is not Sidney Crosby. This is not Wayne Gretzky. Uh, it's rather remarkable now. And didn't the story go that I think he hopped over the boards and kept yelling and yelling and yelling for a change. And he hopped on and sure enough, you know, he'd tell you it was his faith that got him there was his faith was calling him. Well, it called him perfectly because right spot, you know, with as Foster would say with Kenoyer and Esposito and just incredible. So yeah, you wouldn't have thought that he was a very good winger from, from Henderson and Ellis and Ullman and, you know, from Detroit days in Toronto. And I remember the, the switchboard and they did it later when uh, Daryl Sittler scored against the Czechs and got that beautiful goal. Mm-hmm. And you'd hear Paul Morris's voice on the answering service at Maple Leaf Gardens and say, you've reached Maple Leaf Gardens, the home of Daryl Sittler. <laughs> and earlier, prior to that, they did, you've reached Maple Leaf Gardens, the home of Paul Henderson. You know, and that would 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 be what Paul Morris would have on the answer machine at Maple Leaf Gardens. So I remember as a kid just calling the gardens to hear that because the whole country, obviously what Paul did. And yeah, it was shocking. But I think Ellis and Henderson both showed very well in that series. So as a Maple Leaf fan growing up, you were extra proud and Canadian. Sure, that trumped everything. I hate to use that term, but sorry. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> uh, you, 
you uh, you just felt that sense of pride. And as much as the Maple Leafs at that time were so much more of Canada because there weren't all the teams that there are mm-hmm. now in Canada. Yeah, Vancouver had just come into the league right, just uh, came. right yeah. around that time. So you were split between the Habs and the Leafs. Now, you're, you tell me earlier, your dad and brothers went to game two at Maple Leaf Garden September oh, yeah. 4th. So did you not go? How do, how do you get left out of that mix? Because I was 13 and my other two brothers were uh, <laughs> seven and uh, 11 years older than I was. So, so it's reverse seniority. What kind of discrimination policy is this? No workplace That's will right. allow this. As much as I was into hockey, my dad somehow only got three tickets. But as the story goes, and you remember Pete Mahovlich scored that beautiful shorthanded goal in the 4-1 win at Maple Leaf Gardens. Still, that, that's just etched in my memory with that big hulking frame of Pete Mahovlich coming down the breakaway and scoring that goal and after getting bombed in the first game. So all that was great. And my two brothers come home with my dad after the game and they they look at me and they've got tears rolling down their cheeks. And I said, uh, like, with smiles. And I said, what happened? And they said, oh my God, dad was a beauty. And I said, why? What happened? They were up in the uh, end blues there. Remember where the red striping used to, the red curtains were at Maple Leaf Gardens up against the back. Was this above the uh, the scoreboard that had the team logos on it? Yeah. yeah. Right. So the higher mezzanine yeah. seats up there, I think they were in blues at the time. So those are the seats my dad had. So they were near the top of the building. And my, my brother said, somebody in front of them, I guess, had uh, a little too much cabbage for dinner and it kept going up to them. And my dad tapped the guy on the shoulder and he said, if you want to do that, get the hell out of here. I don't have to sit here and smell that all night long. Wow. So basically, as you know, as two roughly just out of teen years, my brothers were more than a little embarrassed that my dad is giving the guy in front of them. But they, they stayed the whole game. So that's what I remember most besides what happened on the ice in the 4-1 win was my family coming home and us just having a terrific laugh. About that. You know, we talk about the importance of ventilation in buildings now because <laughs> of COVID. It was apparently really important in 1970 for different reasons in 19. Yes, exactly. uh, in 19. So we, this series ends, Ken, and we all wonder where is this going to take us? Where will this take international hockey? And it's amazing now to think about, like I, I've even told my kids this, where you don't understand how big these, then these uh, series got um, later in like, like the, the red army game, the red army coming over and playing the Habs on, uh, on new year's Eve. And then the Philadelphia game, the Bob Cole, they're, they're going they're off, going they're, you know, like they're going up. So yeah. th- it's really difficult to describe for, for a, a good run of time that, you'd want this so badly for your local club, the Canadians, the Flyers, the Sabres, whomever. Um, It's difficult to explain how it just, uh, that also caught fire where we all just sat around Christmas holidays and we were just, we couldn't wait for these games to be on TV when the Soviets would come over. Because 72 set the stage and you're only hoping it could be nearly as good. And to me, all those series and yes, Bob Cole and, and they're going home and Ed Van Imp and the Flyers and and all that. But to me, the best three games, and as a play-by-play guy, because at the time, uh, 85, I just got to CBC, and I remember coming back from a trip in Jamaica and went with some people to watch that 87 series, a couple of games at their homes, and Dan Kelly doing play-by-play, always admired Dan Kelly. Yeah. As a kid growing up, I'd find KMOX 1120 out of St. Louis at night, and I'd listen to Dan Kelly of the St. Louis Blues call games, so I always loved Dan. Those three games, if you want perfection, in my mind, in my ear of what play-by-play is, getting in, getting out, doing it right, doing your homework, and the magnificent call and the inflection on it, which I can only dream to hit perfectly as he does every friggin' time, was Dan Kelly. Those three games, six, five, Canada, Russia, that series in 87 was unbelievable hockey.
Yeah, all on CTV. It's my it's my favorite hockey ever. I, I've got the DVD set of the games. I'm yeah. not sure. I'm not sure the Canada Cup or World Cup. I know '96 was really, and you know where where you are now on your side of the border. The '96 really resonated with more the USA hockey community. But but it's hard, right? It's a hard time of year. Uh, schools back in, football's going on, and people are obsessed with all levels of football in the states. So I'm not sure '96 in the United States with that team winning with Mike Richter and goal really ever. It, it lit a bit of a match, didn't it? But it's yeah. not like it's it, it didn't have the impact that we had coming to school the day after the 87 win i can tell you that no probably not and 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 the the match that was lit wasn't it by brett hall was the stick high was that the one was it in hall? one i think in no in in one of the games yeah i think it but i thought steve eiserman's goal was offside in game one of the final oh, right. and i think he admitted that somebody said right. you look you look like you were a couple feet offside steve and he's like i was more like six feet offside but who's counting? right but 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 hey, Matthew Shane was was twenty feet offside, and look where that got us. So it could have been it could have been much worse, much earlier. Thank you, they didn't think about that. But yes, so that, no, it didn't. I, I wasn't here at the time because I came a mm -hmm. year later. So I really don't know what the impact. But I don't think anything can hold the impact of what seventy two did. And I think every series up to what we were talking about eighty seven, and even a little bit now. But you know, like when you say. You know, when I spent so much time in Toronto and I've been here 25 years, no one would remember me now unless they're 35, probably. Yeah, wouldn't have a clue unless they watched or listened when I was 10 and doing Leaf Hockey or Hockey Night in Canada. Wouldn't have a clue. And that's why I, I, I wonder sometimes when we talk about these old series, what those younger think, ah, who cares? Well, I, well I wonder if they can. That's what I thought, because I went to a good chunk of the games at the uh, the World Cup in 2016. So that's weird, right? You've got the the young guns team. Your guy Dylan Larkin is on that team with Austin Matthews. He's on there with uh, Jack Eichel. Some younger players. Connor McDavid's on that team, but it wasn't obviously. If you have a gimmick team like that, um, right. you, you, it's Beautiful. not a real international tournament. Yeah. And since then, we haven't had a best on best international tournament with Austin Matthews or Connor McDavid or Jack Eichel. I, I want to see it, but as you know, um, you know that you know Canada and the USA sent sort of you know, scrap heap teams to the Olympics in, uh, in, in 18. Uh, and, and we don't know what's going to happen. We're, we're hopeful. I suppose that it could be a best on best in China, which has just, again, you know, we're in a COVID world. It's China. we got a million, uh, things to navigate before we get there. But I do wonder, like, there's no way uh, international hockey to me. And I hate saying this, I, I'm going to watch it, but I, it can't have the timestamp or the impact that the, the games we're talking about had and the tournaments we're talking about. How could, how could it? It couldn't, I, I think, but would you want to compare 2010 Vancouver? Mm -hmm. You want to compare the Olympics to that and, and your feeling of what you had then. And having said that, I think the Olympics have taken away. That is the best on best tournament now. So I don't know how much more World Cup is going to succeed. I know the players want it. It can be revenue driven for the league and everything else. And we'll watch it. But to have your heart in it. No, I think your heart is now in the Olympics. And there wasn't this conflict because, as you know, um, and a big reason of the, of the lockout was owners said, well, we need a cap. But they've also said this about the Olympics. Like you can't, you know, the Super Bowl ends, the NFL ends, um, uh, NBA is not in the playoffs yet. We can't shut our buildings down for 16 days. You can't shut up business down in the prime of the season. And it's one thing. Can the Leafs open the door back up? Can the New York Rangers? Could many years Detroit? Absolutely. But you're asking Columbus to do it and Dallas to do it and uh, and and Florida to do it. And that's a big ask in the middle of the season to to close the doors and say, just watch the Olympics instead. It doesn't work for some owners. I agree. And I personally, would I want to go? As a player, sure. And if I'm not going as a player, sure. 
because I get three weeks off. And as broadcasters, <laughs> we can go somewhere. That's well, you're I'm back afraid. to Jamaica instead of China, I think. You'll head, you'll head right back to on the. I'm to going Jamaica, to Costa Rica this time. <laughs> We've already booked Costa Rica, and I've been there three times. It's beautiful. I I think for the majority, and it's a vast majority of players, aren't going. That's why they want the Olympics. They get all those weeks off with their families, and good for them. But as an owner, I can see why they don't want to shut down their business and what they're mm. getting out of it without being able to use the logo. Without Still, I don't think they can use the highlights. They finally got insurance covered and other things which they should. The fact that they're just, well, that's the IOC. So they're just so compelled to hold on to their own and they're not looking big picture because they think they are the biggest picture and nothing else is going to help us because we're it. But the NHL thinking if we're going to shut down, we want to grow it that way too. And it's unfortunate they can't. So from the owner's perspective, I could see why they're not, they're grudgingly willing to do it because it's collectively bargained now. Red Wings broadcaster Ken Daniels spending some time uh, talking about 1972, where we're going with international hockey uh, the rest of the way. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast. Back on the air for a Wednesday live show between 5.30 and 9 a.m. tomorrow. Hope you enjoy what's going to be a gorgeous day, and we will see you then. It's a great pleasure to have you download the podcast. Don't forget, subscribe where you can, rate us where you can on iTunes or any other podcatcher.